Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm content to die for my beliefs. So cut off my head and make me a martyr. The people will always remember it. No. They will forget. Hell does exist. God is a thought. God is an idea. It is a place. It is somewhere. But its reference is to something that transcends all things. Why we must tear ourselves apart for this small question of religion? Hey, everybody! This is Daryl Cooper. You are listening to the Martyr Made podcast. Most of you probably have heard my thoughts on Ukraine episode, and from that and from maybe following me on social media, you know that you know that I have kind of a contrarian take from the one you're getting in the mainstream press in the West and from most of our politicians on the, the current crisis. Now, as I said in that episode, it, it wasn't really meant to be a complete history or really even a balanced account of the situation. It was kind of meant as a supplement to balance out what I think is the one-sided version of the story that everybody's getting from, again, the corporate media and politicians, and to encourage a conversation about whether American foreign policy decisions over the last 30 years have contributed to bringing about this crisis. Now, some of you agreed with my presentation. Some of you guys disagreed. The vast majority of you, though, heard me out and your good faith criticism was well received. And one of those criticisms that I took as a request, um, rather, one of those criticisms that I took as a request was uh, 
to actually bring some balance. And so I decided to provide some of that by bringing on somebody with a very different view of the situation from mine and the one I presented in that episode. Some of you may already know him. If you don't, that is really on me because uh, I should have told you about him a long time ago. I've been listening to his podcast for years. He's the host of one of my favorite podcasts, certainly my favorite podcast that focuses on Russia and the Soviet Union and Eastern European history. And uh, I should have been letting you know about him long before today. Uh, He knows the history of the region better than just about anybody I know, certainly better than I do. Uh, His name is Chris Dabbs Andersons, and he's a journalist from Latvia, Riga, Latvia, as well as the creator and host of the Eastern Border podcast. He's also a friend of mine, and uh, it's been too long since we've spoken, Chris Stapps, so it's great to talk to you, man. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for having me on here. And yeah, uh, I have to say thank you to Daryl for um, even starting this show up. I think I was on my own episode five when I spoke about the Afghanistan war or something. And then you kind of dragged me into the bigger podcast society. And it's been, what, five years since then? And, and five wow, years, now I think, yeah. <laughs> Lots changed for both of us since then. I guess so. But it's, it's, been, it's been a long journey. And I have to say that, um, first, I don't disagree with don't disagree with you on everything for one i there are a lot of things that a lot of people don't think about that i actually agree with you on i just i just want to provide a deeper understanding of this whole thing and absolutely uh, and i think i think you kind of overplayed the united states part in this whole situation that's my main thing and i want to bring you more understanding into putin's mindset here one thing that i did agree on so that we have a positive beginning at least is the need for some sort of Visegrad, oh, sorry, Warsaw Pact 2.0, which actually is more likely than you think. And 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 after all the situation, that that's one part where we stand on the same ground. By the way, it seems like a it, it's. I mean, especially uh, if Russian performance in Ukraine is any indication of their overall capabilities, it would seem to me that an alliance between the Baltics and the Poles and the Hungarians and, and, and so forth. And the Ukrainians as well would be probably more than enough to deter Russian aggression, especially if the West, you know, wasn't necessarily, you know, treating them like NATO members, but giving them a nuclear umbrella the way that we do Japan and Saudi Arabia. So that that wasn't an issue. It it seems to me like it could be a solution that would make it so that there would be a deterrence without necessarily having the risk of nuclear war every time there's a flare up. Yeah, that's that's the thing because I I remember this because today I watch because I live in the war news currently. I try to do my reports daily, and I just <clears throat> released my daily report on everything happening in Russia currently, just before we spoke. And that's one of the most that's one of the biggest scares Russian propaganda has right now. Like I watch these Russian propaganda channels. I have to go through a VPN because my beloved government of Latvia decided to completely block access to these websites and everything. So. They do stupid things as well because I need them for work. And I watch and I watch Russian propaganda and they're basically worried that this could be their worst case scenario for one. And if, hey, if Dmitry Solovyov or any other Russian propaganda says that's probably the worst case scenario for Latvia, because uh, their argument was, well, then, you know, then, then they can't wave around NATO flags. So, hey, maybe it's given, maybe it's worth, worth giving a shot. So I was thinking yesterday about how to open up this discussion. We've kind of opened it up already, but I wanted to open it in a way that would kind of, like you said, ease us into our points of disagreement. And I thought that since uh, there's no doubt that you have a much deeper knowledge of the region than I do, that I should call in some heavy artillery to back me up right off the bat. So 
This is a compilation of two quotes from George Kennan, the distinguished American diplomat who authored The Basis of Our Cold War Containment Strategy. He said, mm-hmm. in, the ni- in the late 1990s, when we were thinking about uh, bringing, bringing a few countries, the first few countries into NATO, he said that expanding NATO would be the most fateful error of American policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Such a decision may be expected to inflame the nationalistic, anti-Western, and militaristic tendencies in Russian opinion, to have an adverse effect on the development of Russian democracy, to restore the atmosphere of the Cold War to East-West relations, and to impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. I think NATO expansion is the beginning of a new Cold War. I think the Russians will gradually react quite adversely, and it will affect their policies. I think it is a tragic mistake. There was no reason for this whatsoever. No one was threatening anybody else. The expansion would make the founding fathers of this country turn in their graves. We have signed up to protect a whole series of countries, even though we have neither the resources nor the intention to do so in any serious way. Don't people understand? Our differences in the Cold War were with the Soviet communist regime, and now we are turning our backs on the very people who mounted the greatest bloodless revolution in history to remove that Soviet regime. Of course, there's going to be a bad reaction from Russia. And then the NATO expanders will say that we always told you that that's just how the Russians are, but this is just wrong. Now, um, that's the end of that quote. So it's a little bit unfair of me to call in George Kennan to make my argument for me. So uh, even though you don't really need the backup, I'm going to call some in for you as well. One of my favorite scholars of modern Russia is Professor Stephen Kotkin out of Princeton. Um, And he says that the idea that NATO expansion has played any role in bringing things to this point is wrong. Uh, He points out that Vladimir Putin's aggression is not some deviation from the historical pattern in Russia going going back centuries, and that Putin would be doing doing this, or at least trying to do this, regardless of any accommodations that we made to suppose Russian security interests. In other words, when George Kennan said that NATO expansion would cause a negative reaction from Russia, and that NATO expanders would switch from saying it wouldn't cause that reaction to instead saying, see, that's just how the Russians are. Kotkin would say, yes, that's right. That's just how the Russians are. Um, now, I think you agree more with Professor Kotkin. So why don't we start there? Why is Professor Kotkin right and George Kennan wrong? Uh, and correct me all, if I'm wrong on, on your beliefs there. Yeah, I, I don't want to misrepresent you. No, no, no. no. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, first of all, you have to understand that um, if, if you're talking about Russia, then there is no Russia starting a year about 2000. There's only the Putin's clique that ha- that are basically hold- holding holding <clears throat> Russia hostage. That's the that, that's my theory, anyways, and and my beliefs is that Russia is continuing the proud tradition of the Soviet Union, and are basically being a colonial empire. Uh, what the first mistake that people make is that they presume that Russia is this unified country, although a federation, just like say United States. When more more correct assessment would be that it's kind of like the British Empire, except stuffed together in land. Because the metropolis, which is Moscow and St. Petersburg, the central region, really treats other places as colonies. And that's you, what do you, they also you mean, like colonies. east of the Urals and in the Caucasus and so forth? Yes, yes. All that part. All that, they, they're basically treated as resource colonies, and they have been forever. And the Soviet Union treated the Baltics the same way, and all the satellite states just the same. And that's what they want to do with Ukraine. So that, that's why I want to specify that Putin is not operating in, in Russia's interests itself. But about NATO expansion, see, if our people wouldn't be so aggressively pushing to get inside NATO, right, 
I mean, there's a reason why we wanted to join. We we knew that's the, that's the thing. Uh, I, I I I kind of put put the argument on, on that side because you know, sure, if you didn't want to expand nature when thought that would be a threat, then of course. But if you think about it, there there is a reason why we all wanted to join. Why Latvia wanted to join NATO because we knew we knew that something like this would happen. And and ask Poland, ask Czech Republic, ask everyone. I think that serves as an evidence. I mean, no one really pushed us to join. Joining NATO was basically an insanely popular thing in Latvia. European Union, we had our disagreements. We had our votes about NATO. Even the most vehement Eurosceptics state that joining NATO was the best thing ever. Because we still focus a lot on, on these old affairs because... Russians have been meddling through everything. And, and as I wrote, wrote in my article, we see the parallels here going forward. With, we see the parallels with the past. And, you know, we've all been under Russia's thumb, so to speak. One thing that could have been an alternative here is that if back then in the day we could have united and built this Warsaw Pact 2.0 and made a local alliance, which could then have which could then maybe NATO could provide a nuclear umbrella for or something. Mm-hmm. That would be a better option. That would definitely be a better, better option, I think. But looking back, I think that the that that you know it, it's hard to it's hard for people who it's hard for people who kind of really wanted to join NATO to think it's a bad idea because really we we weren't pressured into it. We just we just wanted to join and of course, not letting yeah. us join. Not see this is the thing because. Because I think the United States let us join because at that point it was more to establish our own rights as sovereign nations. That includes Poland as well, since it's kind of unfair to treat us all just like we are Russia's satellites without any freedom of will, after all. That's that's an issue here. Sure, sure. No doubt uh, the, the people of the new NATO countries... Uh, I, we're we're down with the decision. I mean, it's it's pretty much all upside from what I can tell for a country like Latvia. Um, I guess, you know, what comes to mind when you're talking about that, though, is I'll bet the people of Taiwan would love to join NATO, too. But I guess yeah. that's not necessarily like uh, something that, you know, like we China would definitely take that as a as a massive provocation. Right. And so the United States has strategic interests and, and other interests. Um that involve things like, say, you know, what we're seeing right now, which is an almost an effective alliance to one, maybe a one-sided alliance where Russia is kind of a dependency now on China to a large degree. But, you know, something that we tried really hard to avoid during the Cold War was that Russo-Chinese alliance. And, and we're so, sort of looking like we're starting to see that form. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't doubt that the people of, of the Baltics and Poland and so forth uh, were, were very happy to be joining NATO. Um. I just you think know, that yeah, I just ahead. think that the argument I just think that the argument that us joining NATO made the situation worse was a bit wrong because then you'd probably see more actions <clears throat> like happened like what's happening right now like what happened in in Georgia in 2008 let's not forget that one and like what happened in well, well actually Moldavia let's let's why don't too. you let's talk about georgia in 2008 because what's your like what is your uh perception of what happened there because my perception of what happened there as i described in the podcast that i did um you know our ambassador to russia william burns who's the current cia director in january of 2008 wrote these long cables back to washington 
um, again, January, 2008, uh, these were, these were leaked by Julian Assange through WikiLeaks where he is basically telling us like throwing up a red alert that the Russians have really, they're really at the end of their rope with NATO expansion. And that specifically he's having conversations with Putin, Lavrov, and they're telling him that no Russian leader, any, it doesn't matter who you put in charge is, is going to be able to accept Russia, uh, I'm sorry, Ukraine and Georgia becoming NATO members. And um, that this is a real red line for them. And he writes this back in extremely strong terms. And then three months later in April of 2008, you get the Bucharest Declaration where we say we're going to bring Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. Um, a few months after that is when Saakashvili pulls out of the peacekeeping agreement that had kept the peace in South Ossetia for uh, you know 15 years or so by that point. Um, and he invaded and the Russians retaliated and they retaliated. You can call it an overreaction for sure, but it seems to me like it was a reaction and that they had been sending very clear signals before the entire thing went down that this was something that was a red line for them. What is your perception of what happened there? Well, first of all, again, to mention NATO, it's not NATO why United States should support uh, Ukraine right now, currently, by the way. It is the Budapest Memorandum, which you signed, United Kingdom signed, and also Russia signed, which guaranteed Ukraine's territorial integrity just separately, by the way. But in Georgia, uh, I think the same happened as Transnistria and everywhere else. See, when Putin says he has these NATO red lines, he just knows which buttons to push. Like, Lavrov himself used uh, this prison slang language, this panyachia, this vorev uh, zakonya, you know, the, the mafia speech. He's used that in official channels. And that was just a nice little excuse, at least for me, that was. Because if, if, it, if, if we weren't in NATO by that point, that could have happened in Estonia, in Narva up there, or, or in Latvia. Putin is a KGB officer from the old school. He really wants to restore the Soviet Union. And he actually hasn't been hiding it. See, that's one thing that um, that we mentioned there. See, there's there there are kind of two Putin's presses going out everywhere. There's one that he says to the West, and one that goes out from his propaganda channels, from people who you know, from his propaganda materials. And these and people. This, are constantly... by the way, is one of the best reasons to follow someone like you. It's one of my favorite things about following someone like you is you get this sort of inner information about Russia, about what they're talking about in Russia, in the Russian language, and so forth that you really don't get anywhere else. So that by itself, for everybody out there, is is a good reason you need to go follow Kristaps uh, Pop podcast and his website and, and his social media presence as well. Thank you. Thank you. The, the thing is that Putin has been telling, like in his messaging. He's been messaging constantly that, oh, um, like we've been called Nazis since we even started join started talks of joining the EU, right? And the same goes for for Poland, for for everyone around us. And his outside messaging is this NATO expansion being a threat, but that's an excuse for the West, really. What he means is that he constantly bombards our. In Latvia, a lot of people speak Russian, and we get we get Russian media. And when you constantly get messages that you're Nazis and if Russia wanted, we would eliminate all of you. You know, these indirect threats have been happening since forever, basically, because he had his own problems with, with the Second Chechen War and then, then you know, with the bombings in Ryazan. But yeah, it, it sounds weird, but um, Ukrainians and, and well, Latvians wanted to join NATO because we listened to Putin, to what he said to us. 
with his bravado and imperialism, and we believed him. We're the people who believe that, you know, if Putin says that he'll do something, then, then, then he'll do that. So I, I, think, I think he was just an opportunistic thing. One thing is that um, Putin is not such a great strategist as you might imagine. He works at the operational level, which was his specialty as a colonel in the KGB. He doesn't really plan forward that much. And he's also managed to purge himself from all the advisors who could. He believes his intelligence agency, intelligence agency information that's given to him. And he's a good leader at the operational stage. But his like further strategic options, they're very limited, actually. He's not as smart as he would like you to believe that he is, since, since he kind of mostly reacts to things and often reminds often reminds me of as as a crying crying baby because I, I I wouldn't wouldn't know I wouldn't know what what Russian people think but I'm pretty sure that that uh, if if um, if they would be told like truth on the television about you know that Russia used to be the Soviet Union and of course the people around around them fear Russia then yeah that would that would probably make sense but they have been fed this information inside of russia that um, that nato troops are going to invade moscow and hey i know that we won't you know that that no one will meanwhile people in russia have been told for for 20 years that this is going to happen basically putin took on to this myth that nato is evil and everyone's going to crush russia if nato happens he just used a crisis and, well, and is it is it into this. is it that NATO is is evil in their view, or just that it is more or less explicitly a, an anti-Russian military alliance? I mean, that's oh no no right now right now it's ultimate evil. Uh, it's it's huh. been forever since I NATO is evil. Americans are evil. Um, everyone's just basically trying to destroy things because, like, I think I think one of the recent arguments that was stated publicly by the leader of the Orthodox Church, which is a massive influence in Russia, was the fact that um, we should fight against Ukraine because they are forcing people to go to gay parades, and that makes them Nazis. <laughs> okay, it's that level of of absurdity. Uh, this is this is why you get all the Goebbels connections. They, they they've moved past that because they literally, if you don't go to pro Putin protests, which are happening today, <coughs> since this is the anniversary of the annexation of Crimea. Uh, exactly today, 18th of March, then um, people were, who work in state institutions, such as teachers and everyone, they were threatened to be fired if they don't, and they, they could face repercussions. Secondly, the memo that was sent around Russia today stated that um, please avoid wearing blue and yellow or because uh, Ukrainian, Ukrainian uh, flag colors. Also, they stated that only Slavic people would be allowed to partake in the mass shots. If you see any pictures from the, from, from the big, uh, big thing happening in Luzhniki, if you've seen them on the internet, you'll only see white Russian people there. No Central Asian people, no nothing, because they've been ordered to basically gather those people over there. And, and yeah, participation is mandatory. I mean, they, they've, been, they've been moving through this uh, for, for a long time. They are... They are literally pushing through very Nazi wives and uh, trying to figure out what the 69-year-old man has figured out on his, in his head. This is very difficult since, since well, when, he made, when, he, when Putin made his speech about, um, about how he you know, considers Ukraine not to be a country and all that stuff, 
people, you know, uh, people from Foreign Policy magazine uh, basically called me up and said, "Hey, um, we don't we don't understand what's what's happening, but can you please translate this because you speak Russian to, to so that you can explain this to Americans because it makes no sense what he's saying." And I didn't sleep the whole night because I was like, "Okay, this doesn't make any sense, and I have to explain to Americans why." So it was it was all weird. But, but the thing is, it's not Russian people who are mostly that aggressive, at least normal Russian people. There are a lot of Russians who, who study abroad and everything, and, and all the Russian oligarchs have families and friends and everyone living abroad. It's this one KGB colonel who's sitting there and, and feeling, feeling, kind of feel, feeling personally threatened. And there's this word abida in Russian, which, which means deep personal deep personal kind of um, sorrow or, or hatred and often that doesn't have any specifics behind it since I can't really imagine uh, any situation where where you could reasonably think how how Latvia for example my country would, would invade Russia I mean and the, his his latest arguments about how it, NATO has suddenly become a threat well it wasn't a threat from um, 2004 to something and about Ukraine and Georgia, well, see, they, they have way larger Russian populations than, than we have in Latvia even. And, and if you can look at Kherson and everything, the thing is that Putin has stolen so much and he's so corrupt from his own people that he has to portray uh, the situation for his internal purposes, such as it would seem that without Putin, life would be even worse. So if Ukrainians or Georgians make this pro-Western, pro-EU turn and become more I, I hate this word but um i'm just sorry english not my first language becoming more civilized so to speak joining western values <clears throat> then and, and then people in russia who have a ton of relatives living in ukraine and georgia if they'd see that hey without putin and without these strict soviet nostalgic moves and without everything you actually live better then putin would just lose power and if putin loses power then the system crashes he can't steal he can't steal as much money so yeah i, I believe that um, um, he does these invasions so to strengthen his own position at home okay uh so the consensus in american media and i'm sure there's been dissenting views on this but um but but you know i've been following this on the say newspaper and magazine level for for a long time and the consensus uh that i've always uh heard and read in mainstream american sources is that putin's popularity in russia you know, that, sure, maybe the poll numbers are inflated a bit. You know, the U.S. regime uses polls to make certain issues and people seem more popular than they are. I'm sure they do the same thing in Russia. But that the polls more or less reflect the reality of strong public support for Putin's leadership. You and I had uh, an interaction recently, and then just what you said right now, uh, where I got the impression that obviously you don't think that's true. I, I think you said something in, in our recent Twitter interaction about the Russian people being captives or hostages or, or something, and uh, that his support is not the result of genuine approval, but uh, again, just fear and terror and ignorance um, put out there by this gangster regime, maybe not like Saddam Hussein's 99% approval rating, but closer to that than say Boris Johnson's poll numbers in the UK. And so am I reading you right on that? Like, do you not well, think he's really very popular in Russia? I think he's popular among the rural population and about the, um, among the people who have a lot of Soviet nostalgia and who watch only the TV. He hates internet because among people who use the internet and among the younger population, 
and in the bigger, more and more urban cities, he is very unpopular. That's why he yeah, needs okay. to afford, so, so that's why that's, that's why he needs to that's why he needs to do all these all these falsifications and elections all the time. Well, so yeah, that's actually, that echoes something I've heard from Stephen Kotkin as well. He actually compared Putin's political coalition in Russia to the Donald Trump MAGA coalition in the United States. I think he said that Putin's base of support is basically the disaffected make, make Russia great again crowd. And that his opposition is strongly rooted in the bureaucracy, the educated professional class, um, you know, they live in the big cities, more or less the same people who hate Trump and hate MAGA in the United States. Um, although obviously not so evenly split and under conditions where the opposition has much less power and room to operate. Um, and so it sounds like you agree with that. So one of the questions I have about it, though, you know, is that it seems to me that in a situation like that, there might be some selection bias at work among foreigners who have contacts in Russia and the, the, the people who do much of the writing and reporting on Russia's internal politics. I remember back during the Arab Spring, you would see these articles in our major newspapers assuring us that the liberals were going to come out on top in a place like Egypt because everybody they spoke to, all their local contacts with their finger on the pulse of the people were good liberals. And of course, when the revolution happened, the liberals were just swept aside very easily by the Muslim Brotherhood. And part of what happened, other than just wishful thinking, was that if you're a writer for the New York Times and you need to develop contacts in Egypt, you're going to end up with people from the urban metropolitan centers who maybe probably speak English, people who are socioeconomically well-positioned enough that they would be anywhere near a New York Times journalist when they go poking around. And that journalist was not talking to the poor, devout Muslim guy in the Cairo slum. A journalist wouldn't have the first idea how to find him, let alone communicate effectively with him. And even his educated contacts in the cosmopolitan parts of the big cities in Egypt wouldn't really know how to find or communicate with that guy. And so, of course, it turned out that there were a whole lot of those guys, a lot more of them than there were liberals. And so it was a huge surprise for everybody when the election results came in and the Muslim Brotherhood was the president of Egypt. It seems to me that there's a danger of a similar selection bias with regard to Russia, the people who are writers here in the United States, for example, people who write for the Atlantic or the Washington Post, or the New York Times, um, you know, work for CNN, foreign correspondents, uh, the, the people who are going to shape our perceptions of, of what things are like over there, that the people they know in Russia, you know, live in Moscow and St. Petersburg, they have university degrees and professional jobs, maybe they work in the bureaucracy. So they are essentially drawn heavily from the class of people that you're describing as Putin's opposition. And they tend to believe that that's just what Russians more or less are like. You know, they don't talk to that guy from the small town whose pickup truck has a hammer and sickle, maybe the same way that an American Southerner might have the oh, Confederate flag or something. This is an important thing. This is an important issue because I watch not only the liberal Russian opposition, who are the people that you mentioned, right? I watch also Igor Girkin, the guy who, well, he's now in the Russian opposition, and he's also the guy who was leading the whole Donetsk operation back in 2014. I follow him. He's my favorite enemy. Like, I, I use because he has contacts with boots on the ground, and, uh, and he's amazing. See, Russia, Putin has opposition from extremely right-wing people from, from, from all sorts of walks of life, from people who think that Russia should just close itself off and become a mercantile thing. Putin's being hated by people who actively support this war as well. Putin's being hated by a large majority of the supporters of the Communist Party. And that's because 
That's because, well, even though they might Is it true? I think I I read recently that the Communist Party is the second most popular party in Russia behind Putin's United Russia. Is that right? That is right. Okay. And they they also sometimes state uh, weird statements like, uh, from one of my recent tweets, I just remember, one of... of, Communist Party's Gosduma deputy stated that he praised North Korea for being a true socialist nation while others have abolished the ideas of socialism. <laughs> yeah, we, we've gotten to that point, yeah. But the, thing the bitter is, clingers of communism, I guess. <laughs> but, the, but the thing is that I, I, I watch this and even people who are pro-war and who uh, also pose this idea that Ukraine's full of Nazis, a lot of them on the internet, there's a lot of their channels as well. It's not just these liberals. Yeah, just and these people what? just think Putin has taken too much from the West and he hasn't pushed back hard enough and that he's, yes. he's just weak, right? Yeah. Yes. And so they that call, well, that brings up they call, a question. They call, they call Putin a liberal fascist, mm. yeah. no less. And they consider that this this whole idea, because that, that's what I want to put, put through as well, because like you said, the liberal opposition, uh, it's like, it's not that big, but there's opposition from the Communist Party and from even the Russian monarchists, where this Girkin is like... Those are the opposition parties, which the West don't, doesn't even touch. So what do you what, what do you but, think about yeah. the the idea that maybe Putin is kind of the guy holding back the flood? That if we were to somehow you know be successful in in generating uh, like kind of a mass uprising against him, like like happened in Egypt, say we would end up with the equivalent of the Muslim Brotherhood, not not the good liberals we might hope for, but somebody who's actually to his right right now. Well, one thing that will happen, and I say this with 100% certainty, because I do not see any reasonable options otherwise, is that um, no matter what, no, no matter, if, even if Putin wins the war but can't pay or, or, any, or does some reforms, Chechnya, is, which is, by the way, that war of veterans is, is what I interviewed you for that stuff, but um, Chechnya is going to leave Russia. Definitely, 100%. Ramzan Kadyrov hates Putin, and he's just there because he's been getting rubles, oil rubles, all along. And he is that kind of person. He's Muslim Brotherhood person. He's literally, have, he's literally putting gay people in concentration camps. He's putting Muslim priests, the imams, I believe they're called, uh, who disagree with him into concentration camps. He's breaking the whole tribal society that they have going because they 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 live according to their tapes uh, they're called tapes t uh, t e i p s tapes and um and he's broken the chechen society down so there's opposition to him as well and ramzan kadyrov cannot appear as a loser so if putin loses his war chechen leaves and i believe that what's ha- what's going to happen next most likely scenario is that if putin stays in power you get north korea 2.0 if Putin gets thrown out, it's free for all. And then that's why I mentioned this colonial empire. Then we'll see the Russia, Russia just implode. You when, have when you say North Korea, are, are you talking about, uh, you know, in terms of their geopolitical isolation? Are you talking about it turning into a, you know, a thought controlled slave state the same way in, North Korea is? In, both, actually, pretty hmm. much both, because uh, there's there, there are only two future like, in case of any reasonable reforms, Russia will split apart because, hey, if you're the governor of some sort of post that side of the Ural's state, and there's many of them, whose population is majority your local people and only minority Russian, like there are there are places, there are states in Russia which only have like 10% Russian population living in them, 
what are you going to do? Are you going to stay with Russia with all the sanctions and with reforms that are probably going to put you in jail because you've been corrupt and stealing all the time? Or are you going to declare, declare independence? You know? Do you, think like that, that, do you think that that's perceived in Russia kind of the way it would have been perceived, say, in the United States if during the Cold War, the Soviet Union um, started giving a lot of support to the Malcolm X, Black Panther kind of uh, black nationalist wing of the civil rights movement and saying, hey, these are a separate oh, they people. Did. Yeah, they literally so, did that. The Soviet Union. Well, right, right. Did I understand. That. Right, right, right. But I mean, if, uh, you know, if let's say they were successful and, you know, it was getting to the point where these movements look like they might break off a piece of the American South and uh, declare their independence. Um, certainly, you know, African-American history in the United States would have would have justified a feeling, uh, you know, that would have made that make sense. Um, but the American government would have never tolerated that. Obviously, they would have said these are our people. These are uh, Americans. These are American citizens. And you would have Malcolm X saying, hell no, we're not. We're, we're not. We're captives in this country. We were taken here, et cetera. And he'd be right about that. Um, is, is that a with regard to Ukraine, as well as some of the eastern and southern territories? Um, you know, is, is that a fair comparison or maybe something like uh Maybe something um, like if, if, if uh, say, Russia or China started or America started um, funding and supporting uh, like ultranationalist movements in like among the Welsh in Britain or among the Scottish or something like that. And they wanted to break away that how, how good of a comparison is that to the way Putin and his clique, the Russian uh, sort of Soloviki, et cetera, understands their relationship to Ukraine, some of these other places? See, that's that's one one of the things that I wrote about. Ukraine is important for Russia to even exist, since you have to have Ukraine under your control to call yourself Russia. You have to have it under some sort of sphere of influence, because the very word Russia comes from the Kievan Rus, and it comes from Rurik, the very old Viking, by the way, Swedish, uh, conqueror of these lands and unifier of the Slavic peoples. So if Kievan Rus breaks apart then you can't be the czar of all Russias, since that's the official title that, that, that Putin would like to adopt. Czar of all Russias means the ruler of uh, the Velikorossi, which is modern-day Russia, the Malorossi, which is Ukraine, and the Belyorossi, which is, well, Belarus. So you can't really call yourself Russia, because that's a cultural union, just like Italy, for example, or Spain. Well, Imagine this. How would how would how would Spain go about calling themselves Spain and not just Castile if they wouldn't control Barcelona or Aragon or Catalan lands? That's the same with Russia. Putin thinks that um, that he he needs to do this because otherwise the very the very naming of Russia is is kind of on the shaky ground. And it was already because Kiev and Rus and Kiev is much older than Moscow and the Duchy of Muscovy kind of just usurped title and called themselves Third Rome. It's for him. I think if for him personally, it's a, it's a matter of pride, really. And and one thing that must be taken seriously is that if he wins this somehow, although I doubt he will, then he just won't stop in Ukraine. He won't. Well, what do you think winning won't. looks like for him in Ukraine? This is one of the things that I've been trying to figure out from the beginning, and I I really have not made any headway on whatsoever. Is what is it ah. that he thinks winning in Ukraine looks like? See, he was also lied to. He, because uh, he arrested five chief operatives of the FSB Division Five, which is the FSB uh, FSB network uh, that was supposed to organize these kind of 
rebellions elsewhere and prop up pro-Russian governments. But they, yeah, we 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 probably should have arrested all of the neocons who told us that the Iraqis were going to be throwing flowers at our feet and welcoming us as liberators. <laughs> yeah, this is this is exactly what they told Putin because Putin had managed to, throughout his reign to purge out everyone who even dared to breathe wrong in his decision. And as the leaked letter from Bellingcat, <clears throat> which by the way I fully believe, and I believe also one of these people have been arrested now. Basically, everyone was just too afraid to tell him that there's going to be some resistance because no one, no one believed that there would be a war. And the letter that was leaked with multiple sources, uh, that stated that, yeah, you know, we prepared for this invasion of Ukraine as much as you would prepare for a meteorite striking Moscow, right? So they basically wrote in all the good things, and no one expected this. That's why if you look at the press conference when Putin announces this, everyone is so scared. Everyone's just so terrified because what? No one, no one really thought that this would happen. The most people thought that he would probably enter Donbas and Lugansk region, and there would be some some war. And then he would look at the sanctions and then figure out next moves. And maybe the Ukrainians will be persuaded to just let Lugansk and Donetsk be, and something like that. Not this. Yeah. So, so you're saying that, so, like, within the intelligence agencies that were feeding him information, like. You know, nobody expected war. So the bureaucrats are really just kind of going through the motions of preparing these yes. reports and like, you know, just yes. boilerplate kind of make the boss happy kind of thing without, you know, not giving them like actual real battlefield like predictions and assessments. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Uh, this is this is this is what happened because he was 69 and the whole propaganda thing about Ukraine, because this is why he wanted to liberate Ukraine, because he was honestly told that. Mr. Putin, the Ukrainians are uh, the Ukrainian people, the Russian-speaking people. They really want to join Russia, but are being oppressed. And that also drove his decisions. I mean, it's it's wrong to look at him at this point as a fully rational author, fully rational actor, sorry. He definitely has some screw loose, has, has something gone wrong with his head from his old old crime days and on his old old days in the KGB. And he's very much tied to the organized crime in Russia. I mean, he really thinks he really thinks that, for example, negotiating with the West is 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 a sin, sort of, because to 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 tell the truth to someone that you can scam, that's considered uh, dishonorable in that society. You see, if you can scam someone and you didn't, that's considered bad taste, not professional enough. That's the thing. Well, let, let, that... let's hold real quick. Sorry, I don't. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, I, I want to just ask about this point a little bit because I mean, there, there, there's no rational discourse about these people, uh, Putin, Lavrov, the rest of his inner circle in the United States. There's just in our reality TV political discourse, pretty much all foreigners, you know, even British and Australian people are, are cartoon characters in the American sort of, uh, you know, political discourse, and Putin is just treated the way you're talking about just a straightforward cartoon monster you know irrationally evil entirely corrupt motives lies every time he breathes okay correct me yeah go ahead he used to be okay but i think that he uh, has become this on his own making because i believe he started to believe his own propaganda he certainly wasn't this back in 2008 or 2010 he's switched to this position i think starting from 2014 I well, think yeah, he, okay. He I think that's. I think that's very interesting. I mean, but something obviously, uh, something obviously happened in in 2014 that was different than anything that happened before, which was that one of these color revolutions turned into a violent putsch, where you know you had these groups like 
right sector and Svoboda who were really providing like the muscle and the main foot soldiers for not the protests, but for the coup d'etat when it actually happened. Um, I mean, I I could, you know, without giving the guy uh, being too generous to him, like I can understand why that would have been a bit radicalizing. I mean, I've seen videos of people in Kharkov and other Eastern Ukrainian countries when the putsch was going on and you had right sector going into Mariupol and killing all those people when they uh, when they assaulted that police station or burning those people alive in Odessa. I've seen these videos of people in, in these Eastern Ukrainian cities who were on their knees, literally grandmothers begging Putin, please come save us from the fascists. Um, I mean, I, I can kind of understand why that would change his outlook a little bit, especially when, you know, if you're if you're Russia, you know, just like the Baltics and the Poles and the Ukrainians have good reason to be fearful and, and, and maybe even hateful of, of Russia to a degree, uh, just due to, due to the recent history, uh, the Russians clearly have um, a genuine and, and well-earned paranoia about anything that looks like a Nazi. And so when they see the West throwing our support behind uh, a violent putsch that, you know, whether or not they were the main element or whatever, um, was was heavily uh, you know infested with these these neo-fascist and neo-nazi elements i mean i could see where why that would be a little bit radicalizing but feel free to respond well, to that see that's the thing you presume there sir that Putin actually cares about the russian people he doesn't the thing is that i've i've pulled up a lot of people from his past era and i've read interviews about what <clears throat> putin was like in the 1990s and Putin is a pragmatic person who's very nostalgic for the Soviet Union. And of course, Ukraine does have some issues with this. But to be honest, well, every country has their far-right elements. No That's doubt. what's happening right now. And the guys who were these ultra-Nazis, they couldn't even get 2% in the election. They got 1.5%. That's true, but I have heard that they, like, within the uh, sort of the Ukrainian uh, combat capability, groups like the Azov Battalion are in general some of the most effective soldiers that they have. And they're often used for pacifying areas where, you know, people's loyalties are suspected, et cetera, right? So they're they're not new. No, go ahead. I I don't don't buy it as much because we've, we've seen only videos from Azov Battalion. However, I don't believe that they're uh, they're, they're as, as numerous as they, they're used just like you know, like the Chechens basically for intimidation factor maybe right now. Yeah. Yeah. However, however, I don't think they hold any real political <laughs> power because you know I've I've been to Ukraine. I actually I went to after my weird adventures with Putin's trolls and everything. I went to Kiev in 2018, and from there I actually went to Donbas itself. You know, I was there in Donetsk, and I saw how people there were living. Uh, sorry, um, you said 2015? 2018. 2018. Oh, 2018. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, 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 was, I, I had reported from inside the Lugansk, Donetsk, People's Republics. And I saw how people lived there. And, and yeah, I mean, you, 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 drive, you just drive through public transportation and, and then you hear some, some, noises about, some, some noises about joining the, the military as your only job option. And then I ate at the only world's McDonald's, which is called McDonald's. Or Don Mac, sorry, Don Mac, where they also sold vodka and pelmeni to you, which is just crazy. <laughs> the thing is, if if you look at the Azov department as being terrible to people, then I can assure you, those guys which were sent in from Russia, which actually took the separatist republics of Donetsk and Lugansk, 
they they were just as worse, if not. No that, question. Not you had groups better. like Stronghold. Because because uh, one thing and, yeah. one thing that is one thing that is notable is that the person who's responsible for these kind of protests in Crimea and everywhere, again Igor Girkin, Igor Strelkov. He has well, Strelkov means rifleman or shooter, and that's his nickname, military one. He basically admitted that he had the force the deputies, elected deputies in Crimea to come together to organize the referendum and then they literally stood with machine guns and, and aimed at people uh, who voted in, in that can, one. Can, interesting. So I have not read that. Can you, um, when we're done here, can you send that to me and I'll put it in the show notes for people to check out. I, I would love to check that out as well. Because that's another is, thing that in the mainstream in, press, even in America, um, the, the generally general consensus was again that the referendum might have been a little inflated, but that more or less it reflected the reality that the Crimeans wanted to be a part of Russia. So if there's contrary information to that, I would love to read it. There is, but the, the problem is that, one, it was on YouTube, and now he's thrown out of YouTube. Thanks, America. This is what you did <laughs> bad. I can I can look at this, but I, I, I can't guarantee I'll find anything in English about this. But I'll Have you, have you written about it in the past? Even something maybe that you wrote, like, about uh, it but... Anyway, I'll I'll take a look at this because that's one of the biggest gripes with Western society. Yes, I understand why you want to block Russian propaganda, but it (laughs) disturbs people like me from working because I I need this. And now Igor Girkin, basically, he used to post war updates about the Russian situation and he's in opposition to Putin, yet fully supports the war. And he considers restoring the Russian empire to its borders as his end goal. And he was literally the first leader of this whole situation. But I'll look at some blog or something. I, I think I've ma- I've made I've made something about this. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll send you a link. I, I have an episode called Igor Girkin's Hot Takes. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure it goes on that. And about Russian mm-hmm. opposition, I'm, I'm really yeah. lucky. I'm really lucky that a lot of the people who are anti-Putin they've moved to Riga because of all of our Russian population. So I get to talk with people who are Russian daily about this whole situation. The problem is that um, the problem is that, yeah. Once you once you really have been spending twenty years about you know telling people that NATO is the ultimate evil, what you gonna do? I, I believe that um, Nevzorov, which is which I really which is one of my, my one of my mentors in journalism, Alexander Nevzorov, a great journalist. What he stated is that probably probably what's gonna happen after all this situation is that we're gonna have to do some denazification, just like they did in Germany. They're gonna have to take take uh, the people in buses to Mariupol, uh, where I actually visited. And I've, I've seen the theater. I've been to the theater. It's like crazy. And now it's being bombed. And they'll, they'll, they're going to have to be taken to these places. They're going to have to be shown things to believe because they, they, they truly believe, some of these people truly believe that United States want nothing more than to press the red button and nuke Russia to oblivion. And the only thing that's keeping them at bay is that Putin is merciful and it doesn't attack the United States first. There's a lot well, of people it, who believe that. Is that, I mean, we could say that that's due to propaganda put out by the Russian regime, but it's propaganda that in a lot of ways writes itself, isn't it? In the sense that like, you know, we can talk about Igor Girkin and other Russian politicians who are saying things that are incredibly belligerent. We can put those out there and people say, wow, like the Russians are crazy. But you could do that with a lot of U.S. senators and, and politicians and media people right now who are talking about, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're a little too worried about nuclear war. We shouldn't be so worried about that. And, you know, uh, the fact that, again, we're banning 
Dostoevsky and Tchaikovsky and we're, uh, you know, banning Russian athletes in, from the Paralympics and stuff that, that I, I can't imagine. I mean, you can inform me like how that's playing out on Russian television. I can imagine how it would be playing out on our television if, you know, if it was happening on the other side. Um, oh, that's, oh, that's not playing out on Russian television at all. They're not telling people that, uh, that, 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 you know, that people, that universities in the West are banning Dostoevsky or anything like that. Why no. would they not tell them that? It seems oh, like no. that would be pretty radicalizing for the Russian no, people. No, 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 no. See, they, what, what they do is that they tell that uh, universities in the West are expelling students and forcing them to live on the streets. They're telling people that uh, United States are basically f- looking <clears throat> at anyone who speaks Russian and oh, throwing them out of jobs. They're taking the, the things that you do, which are quite possibly wrong, because for one, Dostoevsky's an awesome author, you shouldn't throw him out. He was also very much, uh, very much what you would call today a, a Republican, in the classical sense, that is. Mm-hmm. But the Russian the Russians don't just stop at uh, the, <clears throat> the things that you do that are quite, quite much not okay. They go all overboard. I mean, the things that uh, are being stated is the fact that Ukraine and NATO would invade Russia three days later if it wasn't for Russia liberating Ukraine. They also state that the United States built bioweapons inside of Ukraine and had specifically trained bats and birds to deliver them into Russia. Also, which is funny, because uh, Putin has stated that Ukraine and Ukrainians and the Russians are basically the same people. He also stated that Ukrainians, together with the United States, have developed bioweapons that only target Slavs. <laughs> Reminder, Ukrainians are also Slavs. Uh, that's the sort of level. You, you, if they would just publish the truth, that would have <clears throat> see Russia has gone overboard with its Western hate. So for is so this long. you're talking about like state media? Are you talking about like the Russian, you know, break? Oh, there is no there is no other there is no other media but state media. This is state media, this is primetime television. Okay. They have people coming on primetime television who honestly state that uh, maybe Russia should nuke Nevada, some sort of airfield in Nevada, just to prove a point that they still have nukes. And that's a Russian Gosduba deputy saying that. Like they've gone so much in the hate the West thing that if, if they would post the truth to the Russian people, they would start to think that the West has calmed down and is getting softer and easier on Russia. Um, let's zoom out a little bit. Um, you, I mentioned that you wrote a very good article. I, I read it again this morning for Foreign Policy Magazine. Uh, and again, the link will be in the show notes about the deep history between Russia and Ukraine. And in it, you mentioned this article that Putin wrote in 2021, last July, it was released on Russian government websites called on the historical unity between Russia and Ukraine. And it is uh, very long, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I've, I've read the whole thing twice and I, and I recommend everybody just slog your way through it um, for just for some insight in, in the way the man sees things. It's a very in-depth essay about the intertwined histories of the two countries and peoples. Um, the kind of thing that, to be honest, you could never imagine an American president writing about the history of the United States. Uh, now, I don't have the competency to judge whether his interpretation of the history is reasonable. Um, certainly, I'm sure that Ukrainian nationalists would have a very different view of things. Uh, but when I read that, or when I saw him give the speech on the eve of this war, uh, that does not look to me like a guy who just sort of cynically wormed his way into a position where he and his gangster friends could steal the Russian economy. And, and they're just using this jingoistic rhetoric to stay in power. I mean, 
if, if that's what it is, it's a, it's a very convincing fake because it really looks to me like a guy who, right or wrong, and whatever he believed in 1990, uh, that right or wrong, for better or worse, really believes what he's saying here and who sees himself as a historical figure and believes that he's acting on behalf of the Russian people and nation. It sounds like you completely disagree with that. But it, again, that's a very compelling fake, I think, if you, if you read no, no, no. through that long no. essay. There is there is this point here, like I said, before 2014 and after 2014. Mm-hmm. Like I said, right now, he's probably bought into his own propaganda or has mental health issues or something of that sort. But he's always focused on, on, on like I probably mentioned that article, on him being the czar figure. He wants to be this noble ruler of all Russia's. And I think that really, really kind of puts him in a weird position. I, if he, when he was just thinking about his own pocket, and he is, at least his friends are, then, then, then everything was more or less fine. But now, well, like I said, yeah, he probably believes that. And that's his well, own He's probably point. accepted at this point. Like he probably knows, like he's not going to be one of those uh, African or Middle Eastern dictators who, you know, eventually just retires to the French Riviera on his, on his Swiss bank account. Um, he knows he's going to, he's going to die in Russia and um, he's going to more or less be unwelcome in, in most of the civilized world until the end of his life. He, he probably understands that that's true. And so I could see how, you know, I don't think he does. I don't know. Okay. Uh, interesting. I don't think he does because I think he believes that the rest of the world is making a mistake here. I think that he truly believes that some sort of evil conspiracy is behind everything. Because, well, he's been told that for years, no less. Well, uh, evil the might view, be the, a stretch. Wait, wait. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, Go. The, the view in Russia is the fact that um, the Japanese still haven't signed a peace treaty with Russia from mm. World War II. Yeah, so that's some disputed islands, right? And yeah, the Kuril. So they're super small islands. But, um, but see, the Japanese have offered immense, invest- immense investing in Russia, immense money. Like they've offered so much to Russia for those islands that, and I believe that if you held a referendum, just like in Crimea, you wouldn't even have to have hold guns at their heads for them to vote to be Japanese citizens. The very prospect of um, people who, of the very prospect of these talks when Shinzo Abe was the prime minister of Japan, when, when he spoke about the situation and maybe trading the Kurils for some monetary help or something like that, that forced a lot of Russian people to actually buy land in Kurils in the hopes that they might become Japanese citizens. See, uh, that's the issue. And, and, and he, he just cut this all off. And another reason is that um, the, the why I think that his options about Ukraine and everything is kind of faked is that 11 times, 11 times since 2014, there were offers by the United Nations to bring in peacekeepers. There were offers to solve this peacefully. Ukraine even worked with this. There were ideas about just United Nations peacekeepers, including Russian peacekeepers, to just solve the situation that Ukraine is so bad. Russia turned down all of them 11 times. There have been like hundreds of solutions for this to end peacefully, hundreds. Well, of can you describe what some of those settlements would have looked like? Some of those offers. Well, some of those offers were just like turning, just just post peacekeepers in the border of Ukraine and Russia, and then United Nations just 
sent independent observers into the Donetsk, Lugansk republics, where they can observe honest elections, where they can ensure peace, and uh, mostly move on to some sort of federalization of Ukraine, because it's a unitary country, and where they could have some autonomy and reach a compromise where they would have more autonomy but remain within Ukraine, or maybe a referendum would be held, but that would be an honest referendum with only people who, you know, actually live there voting, stuff like that. There were many options on the table, a lot of them. Putin personally shut down all of them. Is that because he thinks that by now he believes that these international institutions that would manage something like that are just tools of the United States and and, and our kind of global empire? Well, I... I don't think it is because these institutions have been proven so ineffective. Like, I, I, Security Council of the United Nations is just a joke at this point. I mean, Russia is presiding over it when everyone's kind of looking at this. It's just silly. Uh, but I think that it's more of more of this criminal mindset move. I think this was like, as, as we we know from leaked documents, that Putin had planned this invasion at the exact time when when uh, the American Secret Services reported on this. So. Might as well he had some previous plans. I, I don't know. I did you really see that? Did, did, did you see that? Uh, I've only seen a clip of it, but um, there's an interview. I can't remember the guy's name, but he's uh, he was like w- the head of the office of the advisor to the president in, in Ukraine. And he was giving an interview in 2019. I, I'm pretty sure it was where he's talking about how Russia is going to invade in late 2021, early 2022 sometime. That's going to be the critical moment. And he's got to do it. Because if he doesn't, then we're going to join Ukraine. Putin can't possibly tolerate, or we're going to join NATO. Putin can't possibly tolerate that. And therefore, a a war with Russia, an all-out war with Russia, he said, is the price that we have to pay for entry into NATO. And after we defeat the Russians and throw them out, we will join NATO. Um, Have you seen that clip? Yes, I have. Yes. What's your interpretation of that? Like, I think that I think that he was a wise man who probably saw some things in the future because because you can't really see if you if you border Russia and you're a smaller country than Russia then your your main security issue is Russia at all times and always has been sure I'm pretty sure that he was just thinking ahead because that situation See, uh, back then when the whole separatist republics were just out there, I, I spoke with Ukrainians and I asked them, why don't you just invade those places and take them back? Because the Russian-funded separatists and Russian mercenaries there. And he stated that, well, everyone who is pro-Ukraine has already left. And the, everyone else is basically just extremely pro-Russian. And uh, they weren't interested into... and. and they weren't interested into absorbing so many super pro-Russian people just right back into their government. So why, you, because... so, so why do you think, um, you know, like, cause that's one question I had is um, the same way that I can't understand why Putin would want to occupy Western Ukraine where, you know, it would be a hornet's nest insurgency. Um, why is it that, you know, the Kiev government seems so intent on like, although there's, there seems like there has been some compromise on this more recently um, on keeping Crimea and Eastern Ukraine, like in, in the fold, like. Well, for one, for one, Ukraine was given to Russia because of really pragmatical reasons. It just, what, what Khrushchev said back then in 19, uh, 1954, I think that doesn't make mm-hmm. any sense. The thing is that Crimea needs water. 
without without Ukrainian water, Crimea is nothing. Right. Because they really they had a bunch of issues with that. And there was this channel that with great difficulty the Soviets actually built and that came from Ukraine. And it just it, the the administration of this water like cuz Crimea has no rivers, it has no lakes. It's an island which is basically a touristy desert. Without Ukrainian water, Crimea starves and dies slowly by default. And it still is. The Russians have recaptured the dam on Dnieper River, but Ukraine is just the whole infrastructure and the way how it's built like if if they they would be two separate governments then well it would be totally terrible for everyone especially mm. the people of Crimea that's one of the big things cuz Ukraine uh, Ukraine and Russia administrating this thing how can you imagine this now right now Crimea staying with Russia and Ukraine still doing that thing well Ukraine will never give their water to to Crimeans not unless something terrible happens also it's a political death to just cut off some some lands from from Ukraine. And so do you think right that's now, do you think that's a big goal um, of the Russians in the current war is to secure the territory they need to make sure that that water keeps flowing? I think it's more than that. Like a Russian goal was to basically overturn overturn Ukraine and turn it into a puppet government once again. They even brought out Yanukovych, turn it into something like Belarus because Belarus is is a very sad place too, and we've forgotten about it, but it shouldn't be forgotten because. There is Lukashenko, which was once called the last dictator of Europe. And if you remember, he used MiGs to take down an airplane for, with, with one opposition person in it. And there were mm-hmm. massive protests there as well. So he wanted to turn something, he wants to turn Ukraine into something, basically a puppet state, a vassal of Russia. However, in the long run, which is why I'm convinced that Putin only thinks in medium term at best, in the long run, how will that help Russia? Since one thing you spoke about China earlier. One thing that China is doing is that they're they're renting land from the Russian government for two dollars per uh, per hectare. Uh, that's well, that's basically one thousand square meters, one one square kilometer. That's a hectare. I think it's like ten acres or something. Basically, super cheap renting of the land. And they also get to extract all resources from it. So now the Chinese are growing wheat and corn, which they then export to Japan and Russia sees nothing from it. And if you look at Google Maps of Siberia, you can literally see from space all the Siberian forest that they have rented and sent it out. Sent out. That's, that, hmm. that's what China is doing. Because this is, this is one of the things. Like R- R- Putin just wants to do this. But in the long run, well, he just wants to stuff his own pockets as much as he wants and portray himself as the czar for his own. To, to, what, to what purpose, though? Like, let's say Putin puts aside, you know, $500 billion. Like, I mean, he, he more or less owns the Russian state, right? So, I mean, what, what is the purpose of, you know, stealing money and, and putting it aside? Like, what does he think, where does he think this is going? Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I don't think he is. He just wants to keep stealing, and it's a matter of physical survival as well. If you think about it, if Putin loses power in any way or form, he'll die. He, he yeah, so like a lot of a lot of dictators, you know, they they put aside money, yeah, because they they want to be rich and whatever. But a large part of it is, if if everything ever falls apart, you know, um, it's a lot easier to show up to France with fifty billion dollars than it is to just show up penniless and and expect that maybe they're gonna take you in and give you, uh, you know, give you shelter. So yeah, but at this point, at this point. At this point, he can't even show up in France with fifty thousand dollars, just because. Well, he'll get arrested instantly. I, I, because he's trying to prop up the internal market. We we call it the internal market. It's kind of like the Soviet era. You know, the Soviets also participated in the world fairs with their own technological achievements and all that nonsense. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the people were literally starving inside. You know, Soviets built these wonder machines and sent the man to the moon. Sorry, to the space. You sent the man to the moon. Yeah, it's a metaphor. I'm, I'm just Damn really right. tired enough. <laughs> and you did it by using metric system. Have to punch that one in, mm. mind you. But <laughs> uh, but yeah, basically, Soviets could build one-off things, which are really great. But everything else for the mass consumption, yeah, they weren't really good at that. And and all of this is just just weird because I I personally believe that Russia. My, my sound still for my part, but I believe that it might be time that we would get rid of the last truly colonial empire in the 19th century case. Uh, my best solution is Russia falling apart. Of course, then we will have a bunch of smaller countries with, with nuclear weapons. However, I can, I can reassure you that those people who run, who will run those places in the future, they'll be more than happy to trade their nukes away for A, not being persecuted, and B, some humanitarian aid. Because right now, what's happening in Russia inside and the tragedies like, that's falling on the people is just crazy. You know, there's this Russian joke about the sanctions. Well, you can apply it to the sanctions. It's um, kind of like this, this joke when, when dad comes home from work and says, son, well, the vodka prices have increased. And son says, Daddy, does it mean you'll drink less? And the father just looks back and answers, No, 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 you'll just eat less. You'll from just now eat. <laughs> I heard a similar joke uh, about the tobacco riots back in the 1990s. And so, talk about the 1990s. Like, I mean, it, you know, if a Russian, let's say even a Russian liberal, hears you, someone like you, just anybody like, you know, in the West saying that, you know, the best outcome here is that Russia falls apart and breaks up as a federation. And those people who were alive back in the 1990s, like, it seems like a lot of them could conclude that like, well, yeah, I guess Putin is the best option. I guess we do have to stick with this guy because we all remember that. And oh, do you think they, oh, wait, you presume, again, this sure, is the colonial yeah. option. Yeah, this yeah, is the yeah. colonial option. People in Moscow and Petersburg, oh, they would want to keep Russia together because that would mean losses for Moscow. However, there are already separatist movements everywhere. There are separatist movements in Kuril, just like the ones in Catalonia, in Karelia, which is taken from Finland, and China will want to gobble up the Far East. 
And the people in the Far East, like in Khabarovsk, they voted in the Communist Party instead of United Russia Party because they really were pissed off at Putin. And there's a lot of lot of places where Russians are the minority. Mm. Like I said, there are a lot of places where Russia has been cracking down on these movements, but they are there. A lot of people uh, from outside the St. Petersburg, Moscow, European part of Russia, basically. And even then, if you look at it, there are some places which want to leave. A lot of people just want nothing more than leave Russia. Because like I said, it's a colonial country. And yes, sure, people in Moscow think that would be a great tragedy, but it's a real option. For one, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, which I quote again, he's probably the number one opposition person in Russia. And he... He stated in a recent, in recent uh, interview, I think it was the BBC, that the only way how you could keep Russia together is to basically kill Putin and make a federation that actually cares for its subjects, to just get rid of this colonial empire. And, and, they, and, Russia, and Russia is so afraid of them collapsing that in 2020, they ordered uh, an, a research paper being done by the by the National Academy of Sciences of Russia, where they were forced to investigate uh, the whole how if Russia would collapse, how would it go? And I know because I you know I have podcaster friends and I have contacts and embassies and everything that Russia not falling apart is the number one priority of Putin and the Secret Services. They will they will kill people over it just because it is so close. Well, any, Putin... any, any country would. I mean, the United States, if there were separatist movements, uh, we saw what happened in the 1860s and they would do the same thing now. I think if there were, you know, groups of people, let's say uh, the January 6th supporters, you know, are very strong in the South and the West, if those people, you know, decided they were going to break away. Yeah, we don't but, identify but the with is, the union anymore. I mean, but the, but the thing is, the thing is that I firmly believe that Russia has paid so much attention to the situation that it's, that it's very <clears> likely to happen. And talking about Putin's power specifically, because I have a lot of notes here. One thing that was interesting to me, which I mentioned in an episode that I made a while back, is that um, in, two th- in 2020, when there were Gosduma elections, the, the Russian Academy of Sciences in their ecology department, they were tasked with checking out the air quality and the pollution levels in various Russian cities. And once they had made their report... Nice people from the KGB came in, well, FSB right now, but same thing, really, and told them, no, 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 don't publish the fact that Voronezh and Kazan has like 17 times, 17 times the pollution levels and that you literally have blue snow in winters. That might hurt Putin's reputation. Putin doesn't need to know about your, your horrors because the, ecolo- the ecology thing is also terrible. Literally, the Russian army in their, one of their bases managed to dump so much diesel fuel into the Siberian rivers that they turned red, and you could see that on Google Maps as well. They've had no clear catastrophes. They've had so much everything. They just don't care. And if you think that um, this is matter, no, it matters to the people, because Moscow, this is another example how Moscow just does not care at all about what's happening outside of it. Like Moscow, how how similar is this? Like, I guess here's my question: Is there's a lot of people with a fair amount of reason uh, who look at the black ghettos in American cities and say, like Kanye West said back during Katrina, George Bush doesn't care about black people. The American government just actively uh, has contempt for the for the needs and, and interests 
uh, and aspirations of its African-American population. You look at places like, like Flint, Michigan, famously, like over the last several years, their water supply has been completely contaminated. Um, I mean, so it, like to what degree is this something that like every country has to a certain degree? I mean, you know what I mean? You're asking me a question which I, as a Latvian and living in Rig, I can't give a good answer because I've, I've only been to one of these places. I've been to New York, <clears throat> I've been to Boston, and I've been to Texas, and I've been to Seattle. That's my limit of the United States knowledge. So I don't know anything about Flint, Michigan. Okay. But uh, but I believe that, you know, from my perspective, how I see the news, that's why I'm afraid to make this comment because I haven't really experienced black communities in the United States. And I'm afraid to, you know, if I'll say something stupid, then I'll, I'll be wrong here. But I, I just, from what I've heard on the news... I guess it's somewhat similar. I would rather compare it to the treatment of the Native Americans, really. That's the thing. This is one of the things that I also try to explain in the show that, um, you know, we in Latvia, although we're white and European, we in Latvia feel very close connections to, to Iroquois people, for example. Since, hmm. well, we had, we had a crusade declared upon us. We were among the lost pagans of Europe. And my people have lived here since the ninth century. Our main national holiday is still the old pagan festival of fertility. Our administrative divisions are our old tribal names. My nickname, as I'm chatting with you, is Kronian, which literally means the one from Kurland, of the Kronian tribe. We still have this in Latvia, okay? So I can speak about that, because I've spoken to people there, and I think that, that yeah, it's, it's mostly, mostly how the United States treats, treats Native American people. Can't speak about the black people, though, because, like I said, I've yeah. visited, but I, I'm not qualified enough to, to speak on this. Yeah, I could definitely see that during the Soviet period when they were uh, settling a lot of the nomadic peoples and moving people people around and stuff. Um, it seems like maybe a little bit of a strong assessment for more recent years, like since the collapse of the Soviet Union. But we, we oh, can no, move no, on. No. Yeah, it's, it's totally it's totally fine because, like I said, Tatarstan, for example, in 1993, the one of the biggest republics inside of Russia right now. They also wanted to get independence from Russia. And they, they, they made a referendum. And the referendum voted for the independence. But the Russian, the Russian Federation at the time didn't allow it. Chechnyans fought two brutal wars for their independence. Also weren't allowed. They just don't care. Well, but but no, country, no country would allow that, though, right? I mean, if the Palestinians in Israel uh, voted by referendum, you know, the Palestinian citizens in Israel voted by referendum see, to form their see, own country. A thing. See, there's a thing. This is why Yeltsin, and you might call him an alcoholic prick, and he was, but Yeltsin, in one of his more famous speeches that is probably unknown in the West, stated that, listen to me. All the, all the old Soviet republics. Grab as much freedom as you now can because this window will be closed in the future. Mm-hmm. I translate this into English. Yeah. Because at one point, I believe that Yeltsin, out of all people, actually wanted some democracy. And he was through and through Russian. And like I said, he was an alcoholic prick. But, you know... I think he kind of fell apart this... like over the course of the 90s. But I mean, he was a serious figure in the, you know, before, before he kind of got overtaken by alcohol and everything. He was a, he was a serious guy for sure. <clears throat> oh, did I lose you? No, 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 I'm here. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so let, let, let me ask you this. So 
Well, you, you started talking a little bit about Latvian identity. So let, let, let's, this is a question I have. Let me figure out exactly how to formulate it. So, um, you know, around the world, as globalization has accelerated, uh, there have been various versions of either nationalist or sectarian in, in the case of the Islamic world backlash against this sort of process of, of, of cultural assimilation and homogenization that sort of seems to just, just be a machine-like process that takes place once you're integrated into the whatever, you know, we'll call it the civilized world over here. Other people call it the global American empire, whatever you want to call it. And so um, I, when I, when I look at, uh, you can go back to like, um, for like a good example of it is when political Zionism got its start in the late 18, early 1900s to a large degree, you know, there were, there were a lot of motivations behind it, anti-Semitism, religion, and so forth. But a big part of it was, and this is, comes through very, very clearly in, in Herzl's, uh, pamphlet, um, is that now that Europe and these other countries are opening up to the Jews, letting them come out of the, you know, the, the, the ghettos and the shtetls and, and come out and just be French people or, or whatever, that we're going to lose everything that makes us who we are. And therefore we need our own country where we can, you know, sort of cordon that off and maintain our own, our own specific cultural identity and culture. And uh, you have countries in Eastern Europe, obviously, like the Western Ukrainians who are afraid of that happening to them as a result of assimilation and influence coming in from Russia. Uh, but then you also have like, you know, I look at, a, I look at like the way Hungary and Poland have been treated by the European union, by a lot of American leaders, at least rhetorically as well. Um, ever since they refused to allow, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, non-Christian migrants from the middle East and sub-Saharan Africa to flood into their countries. They've been you know, people over here, like politicians in the United States, call Viktor Orban a fascist, you know, they call the Polish leadership fascist for, you know, some of the uh, socially conservative policies that they have and so forth. And so, like, I, th I think, and, you know, I could be wrong here, but, um, you know, I think that, you know, right now, for a country like Latvia, obviously, the big concern is, is Russia, but that over time, give it 50 years, and there's going to come a time, I think, where a lot of Latvian nationalists, well-intentioned Latvian nationalists will look around and, and realize that they're losing their unique cultural identity to this one big blob that's emanating from the Anglo-American world and that there would, that there will be a backlash against that at a certain point as well. And that, you know, that, that's sort of how I interpret a lot of what I hear from Putin is that he is essentially saying that Russia is not just a, a nation, it's a civilization state like India and China and Europe, and that it's not going to permit Russia, as well as, you know, the periphery that's been gradually peeled off by color revolutions and, and Western influence to, to, to lose that. Um, do you think like, do Russian, is that something that Russians are specifically the leadership? Like, is, is that how they're approaching things? Yeah, I actually have to say that that is that is the case. And in the case of, of Latvia, for example, yeah, we we know this. We know this challenge, and we um, we try to take the best from from American culture and from Western European culture, but we we stick true to our roots. And one thing that is weird is that when I grew up in the '90s, we all were way more American than we are now, because it was cool. It was like it was it was considered cool teaching McDonald's. 
back when we had just one McDonald's. It was really awesome because you were the guy who ate McDonald's because that was really expensive back then in the day because their prices hadn't changed, just our salaries increased. But today, uh, it was like it was if you wore your grandma's knitted T-shirt with Latvian symbolism at 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 uh, school, you were laughed at. Now it's all changed. Now there is this cultural thing that, yeah, we like we like some of your values, but right now being traditionally, you know, following Latvian steps and being a embracing your Latvianness has become the cool thing right now. So I don't think it's going to end up in a some sort of violent tragedy. It can, it can, you know, we can coexist. And the fact is that we are all very wary that Latvians are a small nation and that we need to survive, but that, but that, you know, we, we just try to try to make the best of it. And we might not, we might not like migration from other countries, but that's because, well, you know, everyone who's migrated to our, to our lands has tried to conquer us. So we're kind of we're kind of salty about it. And also, hey, why would you want to come to my country where swamps and forests and it's minus twenty five Celsius in, in winter? Um, so you know, um, can you can you tell me a little bit? I, this is a little but, but, bit of but a, I'll, oh, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll finish about Russia. Thing is, Russia. If, if Putin would actually believe that, then I would understand him. But if he wants some Slavic unity then he wouldn't have attacked Ukraine. Then he wouldn't have destroyed this. And this is why he's so angry, because I believe that Putin really thought that he would be greeted by flowers and greetings and everything because of what his advisors told him to. And he wanted to build this world, but now he's turning back and realizing that, well, he's basically destroyed this. this how, do you, how, do you, how do you reconcile the two ideas that on one side, um, you know, you say that Putin's decisions are driven by either mental illness or just a, a criminal mindset with this idea that you're saying now, which is that he does in some sense, like he believes that there's this hardcore right wing nationalist government that has kind of seized control of Ukraine by force and that he was going in there to liberate these people. Oh, no, that, I mean, those seem a little together. No, okay, no, it doesn't. Ahead. Okay. He believes he wants to be this good czar identity, like Nicholas, the Se- like, like Nikki, the first, I call him Nikki. And or Alexander or something, he sees that as um, you know taking care of his people, because then he'll be allowed to steal more. It's a very, very specific Russian thing, to be honest, and uh, because how the czars operate. Because Nicholas II also was very estranged from his people, and he firmly believed that he's doing the best for them. Meanwhile, people are literally starving. That is this saying in Russian called "Tsar dobry boyare plahia." Or something of that sort. So the meaning is similar. The czar is good. The boyars, his advisors, they're the bad people. The government's the bad people. Mm. Uh, the, see, the, this is why the third Rome, uh, third Rome thing in Orthodoxy comes into play. Because if you know, in the, Byzant- in, the in Byzantium, the the emperor was the head of the church, and they kind of overtook their tradition from from all the situations. So. The Russian Orthodox person probably sees Putin as a czar figure and he wants to be the czar figure. And he cares about the stealing and everything, but to remain legitimate and to continue doing this, you know, you have to kind of act like the czar figure. And that also bothers him because he's like, he has, he has enough money that he really wanted to go into history. And, and he thought, well, maybe I'll do something good for once. It's a very czar-like mentality, like I said. It's, it's uh, hard to put in words if you're throwing me these questions and in like five minutes but uh but what, what explains it really is that he just wants to be a czar extremely rich extremely above everyone else and at the same time portray himself as this savior of the russian people 
That's interesting. That actually reminds me of something that George Kennan did write in the aftermath of the Second World War about the Soviet communists. Is a lot of uh, American leaders that he was that he was writing to, they just couldn't understand. They, they just couldn't believe that the communists actually believed anything that they were saying. That they were just uh, that they were just putting all this stuff out there because it you know keeps the lower classes happy or or whatever it is that it was all just fluff and he made the point that those two things are not always mutually exclusive you know that the line between but between putting up a front ideology to justify yourself and actually believing it very often in individual and in group minds are, are pretty blurred so so that makes sense what you're saying um let me we we keep kind of I haven't figured out quite how to I, I think maybe address something that we're that keeps coming up um and has to do with what I just said, which is uh you know, you you'll you say things like, you know, if Putin really believed what he was saying, if he actually cared about the Russian people and so forth. Um, you know, I get I guess a little bit queasy at the idea that, like far be it from me to uh, doubt that a former KGB colonel doesn't engage in plenty of strategic deception. But I get a little bit queasy um, when I hear people tell me that uh, I can't just don't I can't listen to anything that the other side is saying about their motivations or their goals because wh- whatever they say, it's all lies meant to muddle the issue and paralyze us so that they can do all the things that they were always going to do anyway. Um, it's all a scam. And that the real answer uh, for why they do what they do is just a, a version of, of uh, you know, what, what Kennan said, which is just, that's just how they are. Um, you know, what I mean, I guess, is like, to, to circle back around uh, to the beginning. A I'll, give, bit. I'll give, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give, first of all, I'll give a nice little statement for, yeah. for your uh, Russian-speaking listeners. Извините, парни, он просто не знает Советского Союза, и, ну... Ну да, но как мне тут объяснить, что, что такие принятия, что такое хуйня? Ну я попробую сейчас. Does that uh, translate to get a load of this naive Westerner American? <laughs> uh, not really. It was like, it was more like, um, yeah, he's not one of the Soviet people. I'm, I'm, try, I'm gonna try my best to explain. Forgive me if I, if I fuck up. Oh, uh, take your time. See, the thing is. Um, in Soviet Union, you bought the newspapers Pravda and, and everywhere, everywhere else, and you really looked at them and you read them through, but not because of what they were saying, because of what they were not saying. All the post-Soviet people, we have this special skill called reading between the lines. That was a matter of survival in the Soviet era. That's why our jokes are mostly tied up in nuances in a lot of cases. And we we lived in an atmosphere where for 50 years, our government internally constantly lied, nonstop. Like, they, they lied about everything constantly. Therefore, for me, it is easier to understand that this is a continuation of this. And, and that's, the, that's the big issue. Because no, yeah, I, I don't it, think it, that it, that idea is too hard for Americans to understand <laughs> no, like, with our like, government and our media. Yeah, but the thing is, like, this is, this is the sad case that... Uh, when Putin speaks the truth, that is fully accidental, because, see, he, for one, he succeeded at believing his own lies, so he might talk like he actually believes it sometimes. And on the other hand, the whole apparatus is built on this, because, okay, let me, let, let me explain this to you. Do you believe American 
American government is corrupt. You have corruption in America. I, I know you have. Everyone has. Yeah. Yeah. See, Russia does not have an economy. Russia whole economy is based on corruption. Russia's economy at its given state and how everything functions is not corrupt. It is literally corruption is the basis of it. The same way is the fact that Russian government is the Russian government does not lie. Russian government is built on lying. If they will stop lying, they'll collapse. Same as if people will stop giving bribes, that'll collapse as well. Because the systems of this is, are just crazy. Everyone is trying to scam everyone else in the official circles. It's a corruption-based system. And, and and this is, and I'm going to quote Mr. Nevzorov here, there are three types of corruption. The legal one, where Putin just grants Gazprom shares to whatever or big businesses to the big people. Then there's the small one, where you have to pay bribes to your local doctor and your local cop or whatever. And there's the medium one, where if you're a small business owner, you're only, you're, the only thing that you wish to figure out is how to cheat your tax service, which is done by bribing people. And trust me on this one, you might think it's over the top, but if you have any people from most of his country listening to this, they'll not in agreement on this one. Oh, the sure. Levels but I think a lot of people... The levels, yeah, the levels yeah. of corruption, the levels of corruption that went on in the Soviet era, because that was the way how to survive, because the planned government, planned economy was so inefficient that everyone, like my mom has studies about how she's bribed people to get places, right? corruption was so ingrained in society and the global lies and this tufta. We have to see Russian language now even has terms for fake work and different types of lying. It's like, you know, just like the legend that Inuit have many words for snow. Same. You have halava, tufta, blood. Those are all prison, prison slang terms. And because this crime came, became so ingrained with everything that this is this is crazy, and when I say to people that one of the big things that I respect about the European Union is how they managed to cut this off from us in the Baltics as a tumor, but they don't understand me because we still have some corruption. We still have quite a lot of corruption, but that was one of the things that joining the EU really helped us do. Because before that, oh boy, you, well, it you helps constantly... strengthen the institutions, right? Because I mean, what you're describing is obviously not unique to Russia, um, you know, in any country with weak institutions. Um, you know, I, I, when I would travel to the Middle East, I would go into Bahrain a lot. And um, every time I would go in, the guy stamping my visa, one day he would, you know, the first one time I would go in and he would say, that'll be $5, sir. The next time I go in and he'd be like, that'll be $20, sir, the next time. And so, I mean, he was, you know, the guy was just uh, extorting me basically to get into the country and that's bad like for us for sure like in the west where we have stronger institutions we look at that and say wow that's that's corruption and that is corruption for sure but um you know like i kind of look at that as a result of a a, a country with institutions that are not fully formed you know a a couple decades out from coming from the soviet union and not just not formed putin has been putting conscious effort to weaken them that's the thing, because what he's done is weaken them compared to what? I mean, not compared to the 1990s, right? To be fair, to some extent, even to the 1990s, Yeltsin's Ghost Duma at least weren't just rubber stamping things. Russia has no of these institutions left because everything is just direct. Uh, we control it. We, we call it ruchnoy um, control or manual control. You know, when you when you when you basically switch a massive massive system to 
one person pushing the buttons. The real control of Russia hides in its Security Council, which is a, a council made up of um, Putin, Medvedev, and there's like 30 people in it. And I think out of those 30, uh, or maybe 25, can't remember exactly right now, but like majority of them are military people. And, and Russia, Russia is being kept in check by massive, massive beatings of protesters and all that stuff. It's just, I'm really sad about this, to be honest. I'm really sad to be talking to you about this because I've heard a lot of people calling me Russophobic and everything, but that's, that's not the case. And I'll tell you why, because I believe that we actually need, we'd be better off if we would have a strong democratic Russia as a neighbor. Why? Well, for one, that would help us counter that American cultural influence. That would help, like, if, if Putin would be playing nice and just, you know, letting other people take power or something, and we, we could trade with Russia more normally, and they would be a normal country, that would be a more bigger counterweight to the United States, in, in cultural matters at least. Because I don't believe the United States should have world hegemony. hegemony. I just think that, hey, we, we kind of lost our chances. We lost our chances here, and Putin, if he wanted to, Putin could have just um, turned things turned things a bit over. Because... One thing that is that is true and that um, a lot of people from all the, also the Balkans and the Middle East understand is the fact that in Russia, Putin has placed in positions of power politicians who would rather steal 90% of $100 than 50% of a million. See, it's that kind of thinking. And that's, that's really terrible because, hey, I would really actually love to see a, a friendly Russia. I haven't been able, because of my show, to visit my relatives in Nizhny Novgorod for years now. For one, because I can't enter Russia anymore. I've been arrested. I've been beaten up by by, by them. I, I've 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 spent ten days in a Russian prison. I mean, fuck, man. Uh, yeah, I hear you. Um, that yeah, so, it's, it's sorry, uh, for, sorry, sorry for the swear words, but no, you know, no, it's I, all right. No, this is a, my, my, this is a free speech my, show. It's all right. I mean, my, my, my <clears throat> Russian trolls ruin my marriage too. I mean, and that's just because I decided to criticize Putin. I, I I love Russian people. I have relatives in Russia, you know, and and what's what's what 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 Putin has done with this country. Like when you, when you for me, you see, for me, when you speak about American issues and stuff, I personally believe that if America would have acted differently, that would only delay the action, not prevented it. And secondly, I when I hear when I hear when I heard you stating about the American side of all the things. It really sounded to me like you're taking responsibility away from Putin. And that's uh, no, no, no. the thing. So that I, I, I want to be really, really clear about that, actually. I'm not taking any responsibility away from Putin. I guess what I'm saying is like you know, something like if there is a uh, an angry dog chained up across the street, um, then, you, you know, if you go over and start antagonizing that dog and it bites somebody, then, you know, the the, the angry dog is responsible for that bite, obviously. Uh, but you, you kind of helped create that situation or at the very least, um, you know, to, to not deescalate and avoid it. And I think that when I look through the history of like the 1990s and the, and the early 2000s, again, you listen to the podcast I put out all of these super high powered American diplomats. I mean, all of our, like, I don't know if you know who all those people were that I mentioned, but these are like the, the cream of the crop, the very top, most influential people, Republican, Democrat, of our Cold War diplomatic corps, who were all saying that Russia's taking what we're doing as a, this is during the Yeltsin years, even that Russia's taking what we're doing as a threat. They see NATO expansion as a threat. You know, Ukraine and Georgia are red lines. 
they see us putting missile systems in Romania and Poland and uh, giving them the ridiculous line that these are there to protect against Iran. And they say, you know, that's clearly ridiculous. So they see that as a threat. And then when finally, you know, the Russians who have been saying all along also that this is making us feel threatened. And if you keep this up, we're going to have to do something about it. When it finally comes to a point of conflict, we're kind of told, oh, don't listen to anything that they have to say. None of that's true. They're just Ooh. criminals and they were always going to invade. Like, that's very hard for me to uh, to accept. I mean, do you un- I understand. I, I understand your position. I also understand why it's hard for you to believe that. It's just that we have grown up in completely different societies and different cultures. Oh, are you, real quick, sorry to interrupt. Are you, are you saying that like the Russians, the Russian leadership, that they don't see like our... Uh, the, the color revolutions we sponsor in all these countries. They don't see the the missile systems in Poland, Rom- in Romania. They don't see like attempts to bring their neighbors well, missile- into NATO, that they're not really concerned about that. Well, they have missile systems. They well, have missile they. systems everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, <laughs> they're they in themselves- Russia, though. They themselves have everything. Yeah, but Russia is so huge that, hey, this is inevitable. And like I said, once again, they are not concerned because of the attack. For one, how do you imagine they would start a nuclear war where all their kids and everyone lives in the West? This is why they, they, they got so much yelled at by, by the other side of the opposition, the, the very pro, very Russian imperial side, that the Russian leadership has too many ties with the West. Stalin didn't have any, didn't have any dodges in, in California. Like Everyone in the Russian leadership does. It kind of seems to me very hypocritical and very kind of uh, what makes it unbelievable is the fact that Russian leadership has spent they, they want to rule Russia, extort all the wealth from it and spend it on the West. And they're just saying this, that they're worried to the people, because if you look at where the yachts are located, where where their property is located, where they spend all their money, you can see that that, that is in the West. Would you spend your money and would you keep your, your, your big, big savings into a country that you honestly would believe is utterly hostile to you and that would totally invade you? Okay, that's one of the things that also, uh, like, no one expected this war to the point that the fact that we can, we can actually uh, kind of confiscate Russian reserves is one of, the, one of the things that very pro-war people state that if you wanted this war, we had to remove all of our reserves from, from dollars and euros because now they're confiscated, right? That's why I don't believe it. That's why I don't believe this because they have so much corruption in the West as well. And they're dealing with your politicians and everything. I just, I, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. They're just doing this to, put in, to internally prop up themselves. The elites, they would like to live in, I don't know, France or, or, or the chief propagandist uh, Solovyov, Vladimir Solovyov. He had two villas near the Komi Lake in Italy, and he was basically crying after and calling this unfair after they took those villas away. How can you, how can you even possibly think that they would, they would really consider themselves, honestly, the West to be this super evil and be mega worried if, if, if they all just are buying up properties and they basically just, just deal with the West constantly? Yeah, I think that's... Um... And, and well, maybe maybe this is not true in the specific Russian context. But when I look at the, uh, you know, the the one percent of the one percent oligarchic class in the United States, for example, I mean, those are in general like the people who identify with the United States the least, the least patriotic group of people that you're going to find. They see themselves as global citizens, and so I mean, I, I, I kind of like when I hear that, it kind of sounds like a like a class issue. This is the cosmopolitan global billionaire class, but maybe it's different in Russia. 
Well, you see, you, you can't you can't be in this one percent of this one percent if you are not utterly obedient to Putin and doing what he says. Because Putin is literally your lifeline to these resources, which are not made by honest business, which is made by basically robbing, robbing the Russian people dry. Well, yeah. So yeah, I hear that. Um, so let me ask you something before we uh, get out of here, because I, I don't want to take up your whole day. I could talk to you all day about this stuff, um, and and I hope maybe we can do this again uh, pretty soon as things develop. Maybe talk about some of the stuff that's actually going on in in, in hey, Ukraine hey. and everything. I'm always I'm always happy I'm always happy to chat with you, mate. Because uh, cool. Because in, uh, yeah, I, I have about twenty minutes left. Uh, okay. I, I, but but uh, but yeah. Otherwise, if you hey, if you ever want me in the show, and if your audience doesn't boo me out instantly, then no 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 no. Not, they won't do that. Trust me. There's going to be plenty of them that agree with everything you're saying. So they're going to be very uh, refreshed no, no, no. to hear. I, I, I don't. Ex- I don't expect to agree with this, but you make strong points. By the way, I have to have to commend you on that. But about this angry dog thing, see, my idea is the fact that, well, it's another thing of those half measures. Like if you wanted, if, if you saw an angry dog across the street, and real quick, kind of the- uh, to, to add one element to that, like an angry dog, but also you could say. I think um, an angry dog that's been abused, you know, when I like I, I shared a little bit and I've got a lot more material written by a lot of like economists who were over in Russia doing shock therapy, people who were involved in the Western financial uh, industry who were mm. going over there and facilitating a lot of this robbery that was taking place in the 1990s and building these oligarchs up, laundering their money. So, I mean, it's an angry dog, but it's also an abused dog. So when you go across the street to antagonize it, you got to take that into account as well. Yeah, definitely. But one of the oligarch parts is the fact that Putin did not eliminate oligarchs. He just replaced the old ones with his his own cronies, which is called the Ozera, Cooperative Ozera. Because they all, together, if you look at Putin's cronies and, and cohorts, you can see that they all shared this Dacha cooperative near, uh, near, the, uh, near the lake in St. Petersburg. So put in the, put how, in how much of that is just uh, how much of that is just sort of a regional cultural thing? Though I mean, Ukraine's got an oligarch class. These are guys who are you no, know no, hiring. No. They, they, they started forth. they started sharing this before they became oligarchs. You see, so he yeah. just basically Prigozhin, the guy who runs uh, the private warfare company Wagner, he just used to be a a cook, a chef. For Putin, and then Putin made him awesome. Putin's yeah. ex-bodyguards, everyone's like like that. One thing that I do agree upon, though, is that um, America lost their uh, chance at making Russia democratic. I think when they, in the early nineties, there there what there has been abuse. There has been an encouragement by the United States, definitely. And I think that the United States should have maybe to solve this whole situation more peacefully, maybe be be more honest about about this whole situation with Yeltsin. When Yeltsin was in power, in those years, I think that that was the, that was the one chance to turn... Like, because Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, we're all, we're all trying to be democratic nations. I would even say that we are kind of the biggest successes of United States foreign policy, in a way, because we are super democratic here, and we're, we're actually very pro-American. You would, you would be surprised. We actually like Americans more than, than, you know, most other countries. But that could have been in Russia, and, and, and the United States lost that opportunity to strengthen their well, strengthen the one kind of democratic transition leader. Remember that Yeltsin picked, hand-picked Putin to be his successor. His other option at that point was Boris Nemtsov, who was killed by Ramzan Kadyrov and his Chechen guys as a present uh, in, in Putin's birthday. So, yeah. If, if I would have to criticize the United States, I would, I would definitely say that it was the early 90s when the United States had to prove some support. What I would like to say is that if this ends, then 
if Russia splits apart, then I think United States shouldn't be harsh on the new states that are going to pop up and try to be democratic. I really think that the best case scenario is that Russia splits apart and the United States and the World Society provides actual humanitarian aid, not just to Ukraine, but also to Russia in exchange for the nukes, of course, but for once try to uh, genuinely try to integrate integrate them into into a proper world society, I think. What do you think about... um... The argument that people make, uh, including a, you know a lot of a lot of people up in the foreign policy establishment, made this not not so much recently, uh, but uh, in the past, um, the, of the comparison between like the Monroe Doctrine and the way Russia feels about its near abroad, say Cuba and Ukraine, right? That mm. we to this day still have an embargo on Cuba because you're not allowed to live right next to us and be uh, an ally of you know the, of of our adversaries. You're just not allowed to do it. Um, and if we could invade Cuba and get away with it, I think politically, we probably would, you know, for decades, it looked like we might do that. Um, do you think that that's a, a valid, more or less valid comparison or, and, and, and if so, like, you know, it, it seems, it seems like a, a little bit of imperial hypocrisy. So do you, do you agree with that? And if not, well, maybe explain well, why. Well, for one, Venezuela is a strong ally of Russia already. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and we've been trying to overthrow them too. <laughs> yeah, but you know, probably for for a reason. The thing is that um, America might do imperial things, at least to us here in in Eastern Europe, by more of soft routes. But ooh, next time we talk, we're going to have to discuss Syria. <laughs> I, I say Eastern Europe. I, yeah, I, that's okay. why I mentioned sure. I have. Sir, I'm a listener of your show. Oh, sorry, yeah, comrade. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, to me, you're a comrade. I, I've been listening to your show. I know, I know about Syria. I also know what Russia's been doing in Syria. Syria is kind of a, a proxy war place in the world, if we're looking at it seriously. But yep. uh, I, I really, really think that Russia has like a lot of internal issues, and that all this is basically made to strengthen its internal authority because Russia is too big to invade anyways. You can't invade Russia. Of course. And, yeah. And, 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 and I believe that they're, they would, they would care less about these things if, uh, if they, if their politicians actually be, you know, people who are caring about Russian people, not, 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 not for example, uh, yelling that the North Korea is the best country on planet earth, right? Which alone <laughs> is scary. But, uh, yeah, definitely. The, but, to be fair, I like real politics takes. And yeah, yeah, it might be hypocritical. It is. Does it change what Putin has done? No, it doesn't. I mean, no, it doesn't change what he's it, done, but it, it sheds it a little bit. It, well, but it sheds a little bit of light on why maybe they interpret our moves the way they do, right? I mean, why they would interpret uh, our sponsorship I, of color I, revolution. I, I, think, as... I, think, I think it's, I, I really think it's more like this, like, oh, look, Americans did something kind of stupid hey let's let's use this for our internal propaganda it's awesome well, but these are but these are things that if if they were to do them in our hemisphere we would we would i mean it'd be a hot war if they put uh you know missile systems in canada or something like that i mean we would respond that way no question about it yeah, and but remember that you also literally border you know you literally border russia you have alaska near, near alaska over there right and you have yeah. missile systems there as well so Russia is just so huge being with its colonial empire that uh, like the, the percentage of, of how much Russia is actually bordering NATO right now is so super tiny. 
And it's insane. I mean, we live in a world where, where this is inevitable. If your country takes up one sixth of the planet or one seventh, I don't know how, how many, how, how many square kilometers that is. I mean, look, how, one, how do you expect Lafayette to invade you? Two, well, you take up so much space that you're obviously going to border some hostile countries. Yeah. And, and, well, they're and, not worried about, and, they're not, but they're not worried about Latvia invading them, right? They're worried about the Baltic states and Poland. Yeah, meanwhile, and meanwhile, they're utterly ignoring China that's literally gobbling up their territory and who has now, print, who now prints maps in schools, which posts that the uh, Russian territory is actually native Chinese territory, which like they, they utterly, their government utterly ignores the real threat that is taking up Russian lands. Well, but so, so, I mean, isn't that maybe a sign that, uh, you know, that that's because surely they understand that um that that that's how back into a corner these, these guys feel i mean that these guys do feel back into such a corner that they do have to get into this marriage of convenience with china whatever the future dangers of it like that there's a more immediate danger right now um i but mean the more immediate danger is literally happening from china like seriously the there are the near baikal you know the lake baikal the one thing that is a the natural kind of nature monument in china yeah they they have more tours to that in chinese than they have in russian and that whole district which by the way is the autonomous jewish district of russia because they have yeah, a place like yeah. that <laughs> it, it, it's majority chinese at this point like china is actively quietly huh. gobbling up all the, the, the like and Russia, Chinese rich people just buy up lands there and they they literally send send like families of, of from China in there because the land's cheaper and they just grow stuff and do their businesses like what Putin is afraid of NATO doing China is doing at this point so eh. and 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 th- this also makes me kind of uh, it makes me kind of think that Putin Putin just puts up the show that he cares about Russian people and, and wants to be the czar figure because China's China's yuans are just just too tasty, you know. They're they're too good. Well, um, everything else I want to talk about is the beginning of a long conversation, and a lot of it's focusing on uh, Ukraine. We talked a lot about Russia here today, and um, next time we talk, which I, I hope we can do soon, um, I'd like to talk more about Ukraine, specifically about the formation of modern Ukrainian national identity and mm-hmm. Ukrainian history and maybe in the 20th century. And then more specifically about the things that have been going on since, you know, in the 1990s and with the 2004 orange revolution and, and on up through 14 and, and today. So um, that would be the beginning of a long conversation. And so um, is there anything else that like, you know, you just maybe, maybe sign us off with like a final message, like the thing, maybe something that you think that people in the United States or the English speaking world who are going to hear this really need to hear and understand that they may not be getting. Well, one thing that I want to say, Daryl, is that uh, if you ever want me over in your show, I'm in, like, I, I, I will, I will make time, even if it doesn't exist for you. That, that's why we're one. My man. Number two yeah, yeah. is the fact same, that uh, same goes for me. By the way, I'd love to be on Eastern Border again. So, oh, nice, nice. Let's let's organize this. Uh, but that, that's going to happen after the war ends because I'm just stacked no with doubt. the news no episodes doubt. right now. But um, what I want to say that this is a more metaphorical sense is that you know my, my slogan on my show is happiness is mandatory, and um, <laughs> a lot of people think that that's a joke about how you know happiness is enforced on you, but it has a dual meaning there. It's it's about it comes from my grandma who's passed away now, but um, she's she said that I should always be happy because if, if if the state says that you should be happy about something that's being done to you and they enforce this happiness on you, then one of the forms that you can resist is 
find your own ways how to be actually really happy, not not enforced happiness. And she was a she was a religious religious woman, and and she was prohibited to go to church, and she was forced to go into these first of May parades and all this stuff. And then she snuck into the church, and that was that that that, that was her form because she was also a daughter of a Lutheran pastor, and and that's that that's what happiness is mandatory really really stands for. It stands for you know what even if you're being oppressed and, and feeling like like everyone's lying to you. Find a way how to keep your optimism going and don't give up. That's the message. And I know that's a bit idealistic and not about today's subject, but I think you, you know what? That is the this. best possible way that you could have ended this show, I think. So, yeah. Thank you, brother. Thank you, too. Uh, all right. Yeah. Everybody, thanks for listening. Um, if you guys have any questions for uh, Chris Dapps, uh, put it in the thread. And next time I talk to him, I'll work as many of those in as I can. Uh, Chris Depps, again, uh, his podcast is The Eastern Border. Um, what, what's the, uh, what, is it theeasternborder.com? Is that the website? I can't. Dot LV. I, yeah, that's, it's like having, LV. it's like having all my, I, I don't know any of my friends' phone numbers because they're all on speed dial and yours is just one of my bookmarks. So um, follow him on The Eastern Border on on Twitter. Um, he's, like I said, he's doing very, very frequent news updates as this war goes on and um you know, you need to, you definitely need to get information from people who are over there devoting themselves to this full time and who have been doing so for a long time. Um, you know, you're going to get, you, you've got more understanding of the region and the people over there, you know, in Kristaps little finger than you've got on in the entire cast of CNN and Fox news put together. So I encourage everybody to go check out the podcast, um, listen to what he has to say, follow him on Twitter and uh, we will be back again soon. So Chris Dapp's brother, thanks again, man. It was great to talk to you. Yeah. Nice to talk to you as well.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.